This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Romans 3. Hear the word of God. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past 
through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. Turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism and Lord's Day 2. <coughs> On the basis of Holy Scripture, we have the teaching of our beloved Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 2. This is the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism. As you notice, right above Lord's Day 2, of the misery of man, or as the second question and answer of Lord's Day 1 says, how great my sins and miseries are. Regarding how great my sins and miseries are, we find this question, Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism that we go through again is the theme of comfort. The aim is the comfort of the hearts of God's people. However, as you listen to God's word this morning especially, it is not going to sound like comfort at first. For this sermon is about your sin. It is about my sin. And in knowing our sin, we are going to be uncomfortable. Lord's Day 2 is meant to remove from our hearts a false sense of comfort. Lord's Day 2, and as, as well as Lord's Day 3 and 4, in this first section of the Catechism, these Lord's Days are meant to remove from you and from me the false comforts that we may rest in or might rest in in order that we 
turn with our hearts by faith to rest in the only comfort in life and death, and that is in Jesus Christ. At the end of Lord's Day 1, the sermon last Sunday, you will remember with me that point that our only comfort is belonging to Jesus. That's a difficult word, only. There are many things in life that we might call comfort, but there is really only one true comfort. The goal of the catechism is to help us come to this conclusion. Among the many false comforts that we take a hold of and rest in, in our life, is the comfort of our own righteousness. Lord's Day 2 reminds us that our comfort is not our own righteousness. Comfort is not found in thinking of yourself, children, as a good boy or a good girl. That's the lie of the world. Comfort is not thinking of ourselves as good citizens, moral, upright, outstanding, especially in comparison to other people in this world. The philosophers and false Christianity of this world will try to convince us, and we, we, we are taking it on according to our natures, to find joy and happiness and comfort in our esteem, our self-esteem, in convincing ourselves that we are relatively pretty good with our many talents, with our many skills, and with our many morals. And you might come to church this morning also wanting that kind of comfort in the wrong way. You want the minister to stroke your back, as it were, and to tell you that you're fine. You're not so bad a person. You yourself are not so bad. Your church is not so bad. Your problems and circumstances in life, that's the problem. Other people, other churches, those out there, they're the ones that are the problem. You'd rather hear that, to take comfort in that. But comfort comes in recognizing our misery on the sinner. And in seeking mercy in Christ alone. In other words, you and I need to know our depravity. And grow in understanding the depths of our depravity. It's not so pleasant a task. But it's necessary in understanding comfort. This is not just a theological point that we hold up here in our brains, though we, though, though we do. It is not merely a theological point that we must insist upon and fight for in this day and age and among Reformed people who deny depravity, but it is something that we need to know personally and experientially in our souls. The goal of God's Word today is that we come to grips with our own misery. The goal is that we understand God's diagnosis of our problem, that we might be led to understanding the only treatment 
for that problem. The problem is not financial, it's not social, it's not mental, it's not physical even, first and foremost. But it is you. Your heart. Your depravity. May God grant us faith to believe His Word even regarding depravity. That we may find comfort only in Jesus. Consider with me the teaching of Lord's Day 2 under the theme, Knowing My Misery. Knowing, knowing My Misery. I use the word my in purpose because this is something personal. It's how the catechism approaches it. Knowing my misery. First, the depravity of mankind. Second, exposed by the law. That's how the catechism leads us up to it. Exposed by the law. And then finally, knowing this personally. In Lord's Day 2 and Lord's Day 3, we find the catechism instructing us on the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. For the exaltation of Jesus Christ and for the humility of us and for our comfort, we need to know total depravity. And there are three points under this first point that we need to realize regarding our total depravity. Total depravity, first of all, means that all mankind, without exception, are depraved. All mankind, without exception, are depraved. There's only one exception, that's Jesus Christ himself. The, whole, the word depravity means crooked, twisted, wicked, sinful. And total depravity, first of all, refers that to the fact that the totality of humanity is depraved. Every single person head for head on this earth is infected by this disease of depravity or sin. That's clearly Paul's teaching in Romans 3, especially verses 9 and following. Remember, he's thinking about Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. As he thinks about that, he says, For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Total depravity. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It cannot be said any clearer and more emphatically, then Paul does it here, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The totality of humanity is depraved. And one of Paul's main points is this. He's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, it's not just the Gentiles out there in the world that are depraved. It is also you Jews. You Jews who grew up with the oracles of God, he mentions. You Jews who grew up in the church back then. Both Jews and Gentiles depraved. To make sure there's no room for understanding, Paul not only explains that positively, all are depraved, but especially gives the negative, there is none righteous. No, not one. Let's be even more specific. Depravity is most definitely that which infects unregenerate 
the unregenerate in this world, those who are not yet born again. So the innocent-looking child, the nice elderly neighbor, the polite gentleman who greets you down the, down the street, the seemingly honest mechanic who doesn't believe in Jesus. Yes, they are totally depraved, twisted, sinful. And we do need to stop calling them good people. What about you and me in the church? Born in the church, like those Jews who received the oracles of God. Can I answer it this way? What about us? Well, we were totally depraved before the Spirit worked in our hearts. Many of us might not even remember the time that we were in that condition, but you need to understand it. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin that my mother conceived me. That's what we sang in Psalter number 140. So for at least a while before the Holy Spirit worked in your heart, after you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were totally depraved, identical, identical in your depravity to all the reprobate. That was your condition. And there are still some who grow up in the church, even Reformed churches, who people might assume to be regenerate, but whose hearts have not yet been born again, totally depraved. But that leads us to the next question. What about those in whom the Holy Spirit has already worked, the regenerate? And yes, depravity also infects us. Yes, there's a new man, there is a new nature within, but that's a different Lord's Day. Talk about it at a different time. Today, we say with Paul, even those who are regenerate, and really only those who are regenerate can say this, O wretched man that I am. Depravity, total depravity, first means that the totality of humanity, including us, have this depravity. There is none righteous, no, not one. Secondly, regarding total depravity, we must understand that total depravity means sin infects every part of each person. It's not only every human being, but now we're talking about each human being. Every part of each human being is affected. It's a pervasive cancer that has spread further than any kind of physical cancer can spread. It has spread down to the very soul of a human being. And out of that soul comes forth all sorts of sin that pervades, pervades us in every part. Sin is not just what we do, but what we are by nature. 
We don't just have sin. We are sinners. All the faculties of the human, his thinking, his desiring, his feeling, his choosing, his conscience is affected by sin. All parts. Romans 3 speaks of that. In Romans 3, verses 13 through 18, Paul describes the pervasive nature of depravity of sin. After Paul speaks of it as how, uh, of sin as that which is in the totality of humanity, verses 9 through 12, he gets to verse 13 and explains how it spreads to every part. He does so by quoting Psalm 14. And I'll hear this again. Their throat is an open sepulcher. See how he picks out parts. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That means a grave, an open grave. Their tongues, they have used... They have used deceit. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. That's the mind. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes Psalm 14 to express how depravity has spread to all Parts. Now, he doesn't list all the parts comprehensively of the human being, but the point is, it's in every part. We say that about the unregenerate, as outwardly nice as they may seem, the unregenerate, their hearts, minds, wills, bodies, all parts infected with sin. But in a proper sense also regarding the regenerate about us. Though we have a new man that is not infected with sin. Don't ever forget that. Another Lord's Day, a different time. Yet besides that new man in all our parts, we have this depravity. Don't deny that. Total depravity also regarding us. That is the explanation, isn't it? For why even our best works are always tainted with sin. Because no matter what part engages in a work that is properly called good for the child of God, it's still infected with our sin because of total depravity. Finally, total depravity means not only that it's, it spreads through the totality of humanity, not only in every part of the human, but third, and now there is a distinction here between the regenerate and unregenerate. But the point is, it fills every part, particularly of the unregenerate. It fills every part. To illustrate that, children, negatively, think of a cup of liquid. When you add oil to a cup of water, you can see, you can see the oil in the cup. It's in, it's in the water, but it, it's separate. It doesn't 
spread through the whole cup. That's not, that is not a picture of depravity. Here is a picture of total depravity. When you take some dye, some red dye, and you put it in that water, and it goes through the whole cup. All of it. Total depravity is depravity or sinfulness, twistedness in every part completely. And I'll get ahead of myself, but go to Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8. There's where we find the catechism, especially emphasizing that completeness of depravity in the unregenerate. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good? Notice that word, holy. Wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. And the answer is, indeed, we are, except we're regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's found in many passages. Genesis 6, verse 5 is very important. Describing the unregenerate. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Completely depraved. As I said, that there is a difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate here. The unregenerate, the unregenerate have no new man. They're completely filled with this depravity. Completely in all its parts, holy. God's people who are regenerate have a beginning of holiness. There is a new man, and that new man does affect every part so that every part is not filled with depravity. But the point is the unregenerate have no good. There is no common grace. There is no grace of God as a power that works in the hearts of the reprobate mind to make him less sinful. There is no power in the reprobate mind of grace to make him able with his free will to choose what is pleasing to God. Unregenerate cannot choose a single thing that is good. Outwardly, externally, he may be restrained outwardly, externally from doing every possible evil because of laws, because of fear, because of conscience. But in his heart, his mind, his soul, his will, everything within is only evil continually. That's the teaching of God's Word. Even if our human eyes cannot see that in the worldling. And if you are here, as one who says you are a believer, but are not, this is your misery. Total depravity, even in the sense of wholly, completely, in every part, twisted. You desperately need Jesus. The Catechism uses sharp words. It's based on the Word of God to teach that all of mankind 
in every part and completely in every part and the unregenerate is depraved. Now notice a sharp word of the catechism in question and answer five. The word is hate. And here is where I call you, beloved, to focus on yourself. We like to focus sometimes on the unregenerate. But you need to focus on ourselves. Catechism forces us to. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's depravity. The catechism uses the word hate to describe it. Don't forget that word. This is sin. Sin is not a slip-up. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not to be euphemized. And if we mean by the word error that we use the word error to try to minimize any sin of ours, then we ought not be using it. If we mean by that word error, that is not really so bad. Sin is hatred. Hatred of God and hatred of the neighbor. Psychologists of this world, nice reformed theologians will deny this. Want to claim that man is naturally good. Not hateful. Not so wicked. But the Bible speaks of man as haters of God. Let's be specific. When you short with your wife, husbands, and submit to, and therefore God Himself, because we like to point it out in others, I wonder, how should we respond when we hear of all the gross atrocities that happen in this world? Yes, yes, we should, we should respond with horror at such wickedness. Let us not be numb. Let us not be desensitized to this wickedness. And yet at the same time, let us not respond with self-righteousness. Is what, we're go is what is going on in our minds this? When we talk about the wickedness around, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. That's our tendency, isn't it? Depravity is not theoretical theology. Depravity is not a reality out there. It is who I am by nature. That's the hardest thing to come to conclusion, come to a conclusion with. I am that sinner. And no, no, God forbid that I ever carry out those sins that I'm shocked by in this world that I see on the news. God forbid that I ever carry out those sins. But know this. I am prone unto every one of them. Even if I don't feel it right now, I'm inclined to all evil. That 
is total depravity. We must know. Scripture states it explicitly. The creeds explain it repeatedly. And the law exposes it to our human heart through the law. That's question answer three. Whence knowest thou thy misery or that depravity? Out of this law of God, especially the Ten Commandments that we read this morning and every Sunday morning, and that we're supposed to be meditating on day and night, the Ten Commandments expose to us our misery. Here's the first purpose of the law and the constant purpose, the daily purpose of the law, never to be put aside to take on the second purpose of the law only. Yes, we take on the second purpose of the law as a guide to thankfulness. But we never forget the first purpose of the law, which is to show us our sin. The law, children, the law that we read each Sunday, and I know we read it every Sunday morning, is not to be ignored, is not to be bored by, and is not especially this. The law's purpose is not so that we might feel good about keeping that law. The commandments are not meant to be a checklist. We aren't to think of a box after each of the Ten Commandments which we're checking as the minister reads through those commandments. No other gods, check, did that. No graven images, check, didn't serve an idol this week. Didn't take God's name in vain, kept the Sabbath day holy. Honored father and mother. It's not meant to be a checklist of all the things that I have done. But rather the law is meant to expose us to all that we have not done. That which we have done and against God's law, rather. Honor thy father and mother. Your heart breaks in sadness because you see, you know, you have this honor, that authority in your life. You can even think of something concrete. Thou shalt not kill. And you can hear your conscience declare to you, I have killed, I have hated. And especially if you come to that last commandment, thou shalt not covet. You know that's not merely talking about wanting earthly possessions that others have, though it includes that. But any inclination to any sin, any evil. The law is not meant just to expose our external sins, but it's meant to expose the internal, hidden sins. The Catechism makes that point clear when it brings to us the law in this form. What doth the law of God require? Notice the Catechism doesn't list the Ten Commandments. It brings us to the heart of the matter. Love. And then, the, and then this, not just love. Love God. Love your neighbor. And then it lists with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, 
with all your parts, internally and externally. Love. When you think about your heart, your mind and its thinking, you think about your soul and its feelings, you think about your will and its choices, and how we're called with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to love. This is what the law shows to us. God says, love, and I have hated, I've hated the opposite of love. With my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I don't just lack love. I have a nature bent on hatred. In pride, in pride, which is part of this depravity, in pride we turn a blind eye to it. We point out other people's sins. We think about our outward righteousnesses. We especially like what I call a comparative righteousness. And that's going on right here, right now, in the church of Jesus Christ and in our churches. The upholding of our righteousness, or to justify ourselves with a comparative righteousness. We love to compare ourselves to other people. And point out their failures. I didn't do that. And that is our comfort. I didn't abort that baby. I didn't rape anyone. I didn't cause schism. I didn't commit doctrinal error. I didn't. I'm a little more righteous. And God's law that addresses the heart comes to us. Stop comparing yourselves with others. Compare yourselves with God and His law. Stand alone before Him. Alone. You, the publican, before the holy God. It's not to deny other people's sins, but it's to focus upon our own, your own, my own. I am prone to hate God and my neighbor. That's what the law tells me every Sunday. That is what I must come to a conclusion with by faith. And the word of God who says that to me. Prone to hate God and yes, prone to hate my neighbor. Prone to hate my neighbor. Especially in pointing out how they are prone to hate God more than me. Do you know this personally, beloved? More than ever, members of the Protestant Reformed churches need to know this personally. A personal knowledge of our total depravity, not just a head knowledge. Not something just to argue with others. This is my depravity. I am, I know I've said it again and again, 
But I am the chief of sinners. I am evil, born in sin. O wretched man that I am. It must be personal. It must be experiential. By experiential, I mean it includes feelings. It is felt. Christianity is not all about feelings. But this is felt. When I say I am evil, I am prone by nature to hate God. This is my depravity, not just everyone else's. This is not the experience of the child of God while he confesses it. That I'm numb. It's just something that I know intellectually that I, I learned from catechism and I better remember it. Worse, it is not, as I confess this, an enjoyment of the thought. Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Paul warns about that in verse 8 of Romans 3. It's not an antinomian spirit. It's not pride or a haughtiness. This can result too, very ironically. Reformed men and women fight for the truth of total depravity, and in pride they say, I am prone by nature to hate God. I hold to that doctrine. It's not to be confessed in pride. But you know the experience of the child of God as he confesses this personally, do not do you not? It is sorrow, humble sorrow. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I am sorry. I am sorry for my sin, for my depravity. And I'll call it what it is. It is my hatred. My hatred. I feel it in all my parts. There is a reason that the Heidelberg Catechism calls it misery, isn't it? Isn't there? My misery. It should make us feel miserable when we think upon that depravity. Not to wallow in it. But yes, we should feel miserable. Knowledge of that depravity needs to be personal. It needs to be experiential. And it needs to be focused, finally. Yes, we do have, we do have other sorrows in life. I'm not denying that. Some of us have a difficult marriage. A difficult, stressful life. Financial hardship. Sickness. Barrenness. Those are all afflictions and there are many more that you know specifically in your own life. But the focus of our minds and hearts through life is we think upon what is our misery. Needs to be that we are sinners.
if that is not our focus, then we spiral downward into a self-pity in a bitterness because we're focused on how they have sinned against me rather than that I have sinned. Then we take on a victim mentality which is extremely popular in our day and age because everyone else now becomes a perpetrator and I am the one who has been sinned against. Rather, that I am the perpetrator. I am the sinner. As not to deny that there are cruel perpetrators today and that victims must be helped. But you and I must come first and foremost to this conclusion. My main misery is always this. I am the perpetrator. I am the hater of God. I am the hater of my neighbor. That is my misery. And we must mourn for that because, as Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. And that is a mourning, not about all the other consequences of sin, but a mourning for my depravity, first and foremost. Blessed are those that mourn for they. They shall be comforted. They alone receive the comfort of the gospel. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you and I need to be acknowledging I am chief. That we might know the comfort that Jesus Christ came to save us. There is one named Jesus who came in your place. And though we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor, he with his heart was prone by nature to love, to love God and to love his neighbor so much so that he was willing to give of himself for us, his people. This is, a, this is the Savior that we have. Though we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil, he, he was wholly capable of doing every good and inclined to all holiness and that in our place for us with perfect love the opposite of our hatred he came and in our place he stood and for our righteousness he died and Romans 3:22 says this righteousness is unto all and upon all them that believe. My total depravity is covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ. The acknowledging of depravity and this comfort of the gospel that Christ covers my depravity ought not be a one-time experience 
in the child of God's life. As we go through life, we will sin. You will sin today. You will sin tomorrow. You will hate. But through sin, God reminds us of that depravity and the greatness and the depths of that depravity exactly so that he might remind us of the greatness of our Savior and the depths of his love for us. No, you won't become a greater sinner. God forbid that we will. But as we are sanctified, we will become more conscious of the greatness of our sin. Scripture and the Spirit will peel away the layers of our human heart. The more you see your depravity, the more you will realize not only this, I'm, I'm a greater sinner than I ever imagined, but also this. Jesus is a greater Savior than I ever thought. In that way, the gospel comforts us, humbles us, and exalts our God. Let that be, beloved. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.